The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockheads, quit registering for CableTVSucks.com and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 426 with guest Rob Boucher, recorded live February 10th, 2009. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, the NRTV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com And now, the man who says, if it looks like a motherboard and smells like a duck, you probably need a new joke. Carl Franklin! Thank you very much, Lawrence Ryan, and this is Carl Franklin. I'm here for your listening pleasure for the next hour. Richard will be here in just a minute. He is out at the MVP Summit in Redmond, Washington. Wish I was there with you, Richard, and all my MVP friends. And uh, I can't wait to hear what uh, what you've put together for us. Uh, let's just get right into Better Know Framework, because i got something funny to share with you afterwards. Better Know Framework today. We're still talking about WPF. Uh, we're down in system.windows.controls. And today I'm looking at the border control. So the border control draws a border background or both around another element. And there's some really cool examples in here. I'm really impressed with the MSDN documentation. And by the way, somebody emailed me and asked me, uh, where are you getting this documentation? Well, first of all, you could, you know, press F1. But if you don't have anything installed in Visual Studio, if you don't, you know, have the help installed or whatever, just go out to search.net.com, which is a great search engine for uh, .NET developers. It uses Google. And it's run by Dan Appleman, and the places that it searches are only relevant.net sites. Or you could go to Google too, or you could go to Live Search or your favorite search engine if you want to, and just type in system namespace. That will give you pretty much the root level into the MSDN documentation. From there, you can drill it down. So there's some really good XAML uh, examples in here, as well as code examples of using the border. So there you go. Check it out. Know it, learn it, love it. It's system.windows.controls.border. So I did say that I had something funny for you today, and uh, this tickled me. I, I Somebody sent it to me. I think it was Marco or somebody sent it to me today. If you go to shrinkster.com slash 14Z4, you'll read a story, and you may have heard about it because it was all over the news today in talk radio, apparently, that... Uh, uh, t- story is titled McDonald's out of nuggets woman calls police and uh, you know kudos to Mark Miller for showing some restraint Fort Pierce Florida told McDonald's was out of chicken McNuggets after paying for a 10 piece a local woman called 911 three times quote this is an emergency if I would have known they didn't have McNuggets I wouldn't have given my money now she wants to give me a McDouble but I don't want one this woman, uh, Latressa L. Goodman, told, later told police, This is an emergency. The McNugget meltdown happened last week at McDonald's in the 600 block of North US 1, 
and ended with Goodman, 27, getting a notice to appear on a misuse of 911 charge, according to a recently released police report. And what's cool is if you follow this link, which I gave you before, it's at uh, shrinkster.com slash 14Z4. There's actually some audio of the 911 call, and it's just hilarious. So, okay, there's your daily dose of dumb. Now let's uh, get on to the interview. Our guest today is Rob Boucher, Jr., and he's one of the authors that produced the Microsoft Patterns and Practices Application Architecture Guide 2.0, which is available in PDF form at codeplex.com slash apparchguide. That's A-P-P-A-R-C-H guide. He's been in the software space for 16 years, starting out in 1993, supporting Visual C++ 1.0 compiler, supporting the Visual C++ 1.0 compiler in Microsoft Developer Support. It was there he learned core lessons about the proper use and organization of content for developer customers. After welcoming the demise of the evil that was 16-bit memory models, Oh, I love that line. <laughs> he moved into content publishing and documentation. For a time, he was responsible for the categorization and organization of the entirety of the Microsoft knowledge base and later for the design of a replacement system that authored, stored, and published KB articles. He has also been involved in a number of areas inside and outside of Microsoft, including .NET development, testing, content architecture and taxonomy, systems analysis and design, and SEO on various products such as Windows NT, Windows Media Player, Windows Mobile, and Windows Live. SEO? Search engine optimization. Ah, yes. His passion for instruction and guidance led him to the Patterns and Practices Group, where he was on the team that authored the WCF Security Guide, as well as the more recent App Arc Guide 2.0. He currently works on content with friend and project leader J.D. Meyer, who blogs about the App Arc Guide and software architecture in general at blogs.msdn.com slash J-M-E-I-R and www.shapingsoftware.com. Welcome, Rob. Thanks. That sounds like you've had a fun career so far. Yeah, I've moved around a bit. I'm, uh, that's one of the reasons J.D. and I get along. I like to know the entire picture. So Yeah, the whole... One of my stories is that uh, about I went to work in the C++ you know, compiler area, and about six months in, I figured out I couldn't find anything in the knowledge base, and I spent a lot of the rest of my time there till 2002 fixing that problem. <laughs> That's quite a quite a set of data to oversee the knowledge base. Yeah. Yeah, it's even bigger these days, but yeah, it was I think it was about 800,000 articles at the time. Now, were you were you the guy in charge of the the content? So if something got resolved, you're the guy that had to go and change the status to this has been resolved, here's the link and blah blah blah. That was actually a little too low level. It was more kind of the the organization of the knowledge base um, was kind of siloed from the early days when you couldn't uh, when products didn't interact. So you know it was before Office, right? So you had things in a Word area and in an Access area, and then suddenly everything started to interact. But you couldn't put articles, you couldn't mark articles in a way that would be found because they were in these silos. So you'd get things that were irrelevant. So I was responsible for kind of. They call that, you know, taxonomy content architecture of the organization of that, the proper marking. What do we call the products? Because there was 26 different ways to call something, and it wasn't standardized and that sort of stuff. Yeah. The search-resistant architecture. Yes, yes. It was a search-resistant architecture at that at that particular time. And the, uh, it was pre, you know, pre-XML and, and um, you know, just after HTML had kind of come on the scene. And it was this question of, okay, how do I actually even mark this stuff in a way. And we actually jumped, we jumped right over from text files straight to XML. We actually skipped the whole HTML thing and just use XSL to put it into HTML. So Now, what, uh, what, were the, what were the dates around your exposure in the knowledge base there? What, you know, your, when, were, oh, when, when are we talking? I, when are we talking? Uh, 1998 to about 2000 was when I was responsible for organizing it. And then um, I was a content lead in the developer area from about 1996 up until 1998. Um, and then I was responsible for the tool itself for building the next version of the tool 
from about 2000 to about 2002 when I, after the dot-com bust, I decided that the golden handcuffs were off and I should take a break and do something else for a while. Yeah. Okay. Do you, uh, do you know KB Alerts? You know about KB Alerts? Uh, I don't at this point. So this is a really cool thing that uh, our friend Scott Kate uh, uh, put up. It's a website that sends you alerts by email or I think even by SMS when certain knowledge base articles have been resolved or around a particular subject. Oh, that's great. Yeah, isn't that cool? Because that's the problem with the knowledge base is you've got to like peruse it from time to time to see if uh, see if things have been resolved. Yeah, you don't want to be having to be polling it. So this is great if you have something else doing it for you. Yeah, huh. very cool. So um, these days you're working on? Uh, the Application Architecture Guide was the latest project and what I was here to talk about. Okay. Um, so basically this guide is we've uh, tried to, we took a look at the entirety of the Microsoft stack, as we say, you know, anything that's across the entire company. And we said, okay, so you want to go in and you want to use Microsoft technologies to create an application. Okay, where do you start? So there's a host of technologies that are out there. There's certainly a host of principles. Not everybody's familiar with architecture in general. Um, this guide had actually been written back in 2002 for the technologies of that particular time. And it was time to update it because it had been you know, of course, I, I forgot. It's I don't know if software years are like dog years in terms <laughs> of one year is like seven, but it it was ancient in software terms. So we went back and actually did an entire rewrite of the guide, um, and we did it in a form. JD and I we kind of are playing with the term of agile guidance engineering because we work on agile here in, in P and P, and although agile doesn't specifically speak to how to create documentation, more about code, we actually do use a form of it to create this particular piece of documentation. Okay. So the guide in general um, is designed for anybody to come in and take a look at how to do architecture. Uh, we cover actually, it's fairly durable actually, we cover um, a lot of principles and practices in the early part and then we try to put the technology specific stuff, we try to isolate it so that, um, you know, if we go back and need to update it, that's fine. So like chapter two, for example, discusses .NET as it is today. But a lot of the information that's in the earlier chapters really discusses architecture in general. Um, what is our architecture? Why do we care about architecture? Things of that sort. And a little as we go on, I'll discuss the structure of the guide and how to use it in certain scenarios where you know it makes sense to use it. Um, one of the other areas that's down the bottom that we put in there actually very specifically were these technology matrices, which I'm not sure if you guys have taken a look at the guide yet or not. But like, especially like the data technology matrix, which is in the appendix, you know, you start out with this host of technologies, and we did the same thing when we went around Microsoft, and we're like, okay, you got linked entities, entity framework, ADO.NET data services, you know, when do you use each of these things, when are they appropriate? And so we provided this big matrix where you just, we said, okay, here's the benefits of using them, and here's the considerations you can should consider when using them, which could get in the way, depending on what you're doing. So the just provide some structure around the entirety of you know what we're actually producing. I'm uh, downloading it now, as we speak. Oh, okay. So the the overall goal, as you say, is to just sort of provide that overview guidance for a whole bunch of different technologies architecturally. It's it's per, to provide an overview actually of architecture in general, and then to um, then also to build in and overlay the Microsoft stack on top of that. So it's it's not meant to be um, comprehensive, meaning that, well, I should restate, actually. It's comprehensive in terms of what it covers, but it doesn't cover every single architecture style, and it certainly doesn't try to cover every single thing in the architecture space. It's more meant to be a frame that you actually can use as a discussion about architecture. So if you want to learn about certain concepts in here, then, you know, like in Chapter 1, we talk about, you know, the Gang of Four and... Martin Fowler, and what do they say on architecture? So then you have these names to go and take a look at their stuff. And then throughout some of the other parts of the chapters, we label a lot of concepts that are in here, with, and we don't fully explain everything you know, down to the detail. But using that concept, you could then go search and find information on what that concept means right. and how it's appropriate for you. So we d did more of a hotspot type of idea. So if, the analogy is if you're driving down the road, and you already kind of know how to drive, 
you don't want somebody telling you how to move the steering wheel and every little sure. bit, right? You want you want somebody to say, "Don't hit that pothole." By the way, that's dangerous over there. There's some ice over there. Um, you know, if you're on wet pavement, don't put your foot on the brake. You know, if you're half on wet pavement, half on dry, things like that. Basically, the the big anti patterns, the big patterns you want to follow, mm-hmm. and then any sort of other important information that really you know pops out of the woodwork as a, a do over. And that a lot of that comes from us being in uh, developer support, both JD and myself, because yeah. that's the sort of stuff we got. The the first thing that pops out as I'm looking at this is um, two forwards, one by Soma Soma Segar, who's in charge of everything, and mm-hmm. uh, another one by Scott Guthrie. Yep. Scott says this uh, guidance as a whole is based on the combined experience and knowledge of Microsoft experts, Microsoft partners customers and others in the community it would help it will help you understand our platform choose the right architecture choose the right technologies and build applications using proven practices and lessons learned that's valuable stuff yeah yeah we actually had some comments on the net too if you go out look grady booch took a look at it and had some uh a positive blog post on it oh that's and, great uh, well i like the fact that you're describing these as application patterns too, not just you know design patterns of specific elements of the app, but the sort of patterns for the whole app. Right. Well, you use the term archetypes to sort of categorize the different types of of uh, applications that people can build. Mm-hmm. It was one of the uh, the guide is based on a, a lot of the. We took a look at what people were building, and they're still kind of building largely layered apps at this particular point. But there is, um, we actually have, I should talk a little bit about how we created the guide because this will make more sense in this context. We start creating information, and that's on the knowledge base section, which is, um, it's also on CodePlex, and it's app arch without anything else there. There's a bunch of how-tos and videos and other things that we put out there. Then what happens as we go forward, we start to say, okay, what is going to fit in the guide? Because we didn't want the guide to be 800 pages or anything, right? The previous version was only about 180, and this one's about uh, 380. So we then decide, you know, what belongs in the guide. So we divided up the pieces that were in there and discussed mostly the layered architecture and the archetypes and as just a way of pinning um it's a way of pinning, um, you know, what you're going to create against the information that's in the guide. So there's a couple things. If we take a look, actually, at the – it's called the arch, arch frame, architecture frame. And it's in the page, which actually your readers might find this interesting if they just download the guide and follow it along. I should say listeners. Well, while you're looking for that, one thing I noticed is the um – the, the list of people who've contributed to it, a list of contributors, mm-hmm. and it includes several people who've been on our show before. Christian Weyer, Jeremy Miller, Keith Please, Sam Gentili, Ted Neward, and then internally you've got Brad, Brad Abrams, Glenn Block, uh, Ian Ellison-Taylor, Pablo Castro, Pat Helen, Phil Hack, uh, Rob Tiffany, Scott Hanselman. So that's a, that's a hefty list of experts there that have contributed to this. Yeah, part of the part of the whole review process, it's it's impossible to know all of these things, you know, by ourselves. So we have to rely on our experts, and we did an awful lot of review throughout the process of the guide to make sure that the information in the guide, you know, was valid to these experts. Um, so I'd, that's just a you know a, a piece of of the people who gave us significant information, um, you know, on the guide. So let's see, so on on uh, page forty two, actually, the answer to everything. The answer to everything. This is the this is what we call the architecture frame. You know, it's the architecture meta frame actually, and we use this actually is it just this one diagram is used as a pin for the entire guide. So everything actually, if you just look, is kind of here, and how we split things up. So everything starts from a scenario basis. So we look at the even when we are doing the guide, we, one of the first things we do is we go through scenarios, task lists, um, and things of that sort to say, take a look and say, okay, what can, what are people trying to do in the space? Then from that, we're looking at the quality attributes that are across the entirety of the space and what quality attributes are, no, we did a more exhaustive list, but um, when I get to our architecture method, it'll make sense in terms of when you're actually doing your architecture, you decide which of the quality attributes are important for you, and then you just concentrate on those. 
then of course you got your requirements and your constraints that are that are based on your business. Then we use the app types and the architecture styles, which are along the top, as a method of actually splitting up the space. So the app types were, you know, usually you're going to pick a specific app type. Right. Uh, you kind of, you know, kind of know, and you can mix them, right? I mean, you can do a rich client in combination with a web application using some services that will, you know, work with the rich client. Um, but it was a way of really kind of siloing, you know, and saying, okay, well, at least we're starting here. And I think that, you know, most of us who are in the space know that that's kind of what happens um, either by because you decide or the business decides already because of deployment issues or things like that. And then you can also use these architecture styles, which are along the top, which the architecture styles are really just a set of principles that define a certain style. So, And you can certainly mix these, but it provides a way of just talking about you know what you're going to do. So if you're going to do SOA and you're going to do an MVC type of architecture, then at least you have a way to communicate um, you know your architecture back and forth with your developers or with other architects who are on the project. The architecture frame is is a top level frame that we start, which is a you'll see that we use it actually as a basis for all of the other frames that are in the guide. And a frame is really just a set of hotspots, meaning these are the areas that are important from an architecture standpoint and should really um, look at them. So the whole guide is kind of organized around this just this one concept right here. Why don't we actually dig into some of this stuff? Um, okay. Give our listeners some of the actual nuggets of wisdom in here. Okay. So one of the um, one of the early parts, if we take a look at Chapter 3, we have a lot of these uh, diagrams in here. We can take a look at the Common Application Architecture Diagram. And so one of the things that changed, um, actually, it's fairly similar to the first guide, except one of the things that's changed is obviously everything's a lot more, um, well, I don't want to say so unnecessarily, but there's a lot more communication going on, and there are a lot more services that are out there. So there's a number of, you know, services and consumers are much bigger of a deal. So in this particular case, we were talking about these, you know, these four layers, and this is, you know, all the possible layers, not all um, applications will have a service layer. It's unlikely that your mobile application will have a service layer, for example. But this is, you know, the overarching um, diagram that we use throughout the guide. If we go and take a look at any of the application types, you're going to see that they're all based off of this, including the layer guidelines and the data guidelines, and then part four, the, uh, any of the archetypes that are there. And there'll, But there'll be... There'll be some specializations, you know, based on what's in there. For example, in the the RIA area, we're looking at uh, you, we're looking at isolated storage, and then you've got the ability to put you know business processing components on the client if you want, and the rich UI engine. So that's chapter sixteen is actually the the RIA chapter. Here's a nice little nugget on page uh, fifty eight, which is. Um... Key design principles. When getting started with your design, bear in mind the key principles that will help you to create architecture that meets best practices, minimizes costs and maintenance requirements, and promotes usability and extendability. And they are, A, separation of concerns, which is you should be familiar to everybody, breaking your application into distinct features that overlap in functionality as little as possible. B, the single responsibility principle, each component or module should be responsible for only a specific feature of functionality, just sort of related to A. C, principle of least knowledge. A component or an object should not know about internal details of other components or objects, also known as the law of Demeter. Did I say that right, Demeter? Uh, that's how we say it. Yeah. <laughs> D, don't repeat yourself, D-R-Y, don't repeat yourself. Uh, D, don't repeat yourself. <laughs> Don't repeat yourself. There should only be one component providing a specific functionality. The functionality should not be duplicated in any other component. Uh, e, avoid doing a big design up front. If your application requirements are unclear or there is a possibility of the design evolving over time, avoid making a large design effort prematurely. This design principle is often abbreviated BDUF, big design up front. Uh, and then finally, prefer composition over inheritance. 
Wherever possible, use composition over inheritance when reusing functionality because inheritance increases the dependency between parent and child classes, thereby limiting the reuse of child classes. Composition, and this is not in the documentation, but composition is taking um, uh, several objects and relating them together in one place. Isn't that right? Uh, can be. There's the UI composition concept, and then there's the uh, general composition concept for your application. So, uh, in this particular case, they're they're actually probably talking about they we are actually talking about both. So, in the UI concept, yeah, if you're trying to inherit a bunch of different classes, uh, and then you know you you create your base classes and you keep layering functionality on top, it can often be better if you have a complex UI to look at composition as a method. And uh, of course, patterns and practices we write you know, factories and things to help with that process here. And then you go on uh, down the bottom of the page about design considerations, and there's just this nice little list of do's and don'ts here, which is some of them overlap those key principles, like do not duplicate functionality within an application, but um, identify the kinds of components you'll need in your application, group different types of components into logical layers, keep design patterns consistent with each layer, don't mix different types of components in the same logical layer. Determine the type of layering you want to enforce. Use abstraction to implement loose coupling between layers. Do not overload the functionality of a component. Understand how components will communicate with each other. And then uh, keep the data format consistent within a layer or component. And I like this one. Keep cross-cutting code abstracted from the application business logic as much as possible. Cross-cutting code. That's an interesting idea. So that would be security? Yeah. Secure, well, security, logging. Communications. Things of, yeah, things that will go across the entire application where the idea is that, you know, this is something you want to look at from the entirety of the application and not just, you know, onesie, twosie it as you think of it throughout your application. Right. It says you mixing wanna, that code with business logic can lead to a design that's difficult to extend and maintain. Oh, yes. Yep. Very much so. So this is actually a good point, uh, good time to point out the structure of what you're looking at. So yeah. we actually designed the, the guide. You'll see that at the beginning of each of these chapters, we've got an objectives area. And the objectives are something that, after you've gone and read the chapter, you can test against and say, did I meet these objectives or not? That's was our intended uh, purpose for the chapter and our tests. And you also have an overview that you're going to have. So if you read the overview and you say, hey, I already, this is not something I want to look at, you can just actually skip that chapter. And we did that on purpose. Yeah. Because some people will know different parts of, you know, what's going on in here and, and they'll only need to read certain areas. And we usually put some sort of diagram in there if it's appropriate, and then we will go through design principles and considerations and things like that. But we always do it in this bulleted list format. Um, and some people have given us feedback, you know, they were used to conversational books. But the conversational book, I'm not sure, I know that some of us probably curl up with a book at night to, you know, read the conversational part. But if you're going to use it as a reference and you want to go back to it, and um, then it, you know, this bulleted format with the bolding in the front helps it very easily. You can kind of consume what's in the guide. I think conversational books had their place at one time when people had more time. <laughs> but I, I honestly think you're absolutely right to do it this way. People want to go to a specific place and find what they're looking for. I also think it's a point of learning too. When you're early on in your in understanding a technology, conversational point of view sort of helps you get into it. But I mean, if you need this guide, odds are this is not the first app you've built. Yeah. And and you mm -hmm. really want to say get to what does the guide say about? Using Ajax. Yeah. You know, where does it fit in? What's the right way to go about it? Like those kinds of things I think are very valuable. You, you know, we, we're right. We are busy, but we're also saying like, I just want to see what's your opinion on X. Mm -hmm. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our friends at Telerik. And when it comes to testing web applications, usually you have two options. Do it manually, which is hard and takes forever, or use automated testing software, which is quite expensive and rarely does a good job with modern Ajax applications. And all of this is destined to change with Telerik's new automated testing solution, 
WebUI Test Studio, which promises to bring a new era of automated testing to the masses. The product is offered in partnership with Art of Test, the experts in quality assurance technologies. Telerik Web Test Studio is specialized for testing ASP.NET applications, especially ones with rich AJAX and client-side functionality. What's more, it's fully integrated in both Visual Studio Team Suite and Professional Edition, making it easy for developers and QA to collaborate. To top it off, the studio ships with special wrappers for the Telerik AJAX controls, which expose control-specific test actions. Web UI Test Studio is ready for the future with Silverlight testing features coming soon. Check it out at telerik.com. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. If you open the bookmarks, for, for example, for Chapter 3, where we are, you can see that what we did was we took uh, and put headings you know, for each one of these areas that somebody might want to jump to, so you very easily could jump to it. And we kept it fairly clean, so there's not a lot of you know, extra stuff under it so that it could be a good reference. So just for example, I mean, we talk about the architecture frame, then we go into the specific areas, authentication, authorization, caching, communication, composition, concern concurrency and transactions, configuration management, et cetera. Um, so we really set it up for quick consumption. That was one of the, that was a big consideration in terms of the structure of the guide and, and how we designed it and even how we wrote it, because in some places you'll find that we did what I call selective repetition, meaning that we didn't want you to have to go and thread a particular concept through several different chapters to get the information. So we, um, for example, I know that particularly in the RIA chapter, we repeat a lot of the information that was in the web chapter because a RIA application will use a web infrastructure quite often. And we didn't want you to have to go back to the web chapter and read the deployment stuff. We took Instead, we took the web chapter stuff and then we made it more RIA-specific as, as you needed. Well, and, I, and it, that's very referenceable that I, I want to be able to click on the link somewhere in this PDF and end up with all the information I needed to know about that topic. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Talking about page rendering, it should auto stand that the it's not a lot of words, right? Like I, I'm looking at under the web applications and go, this is a couple of paragraphs at most. Mm -hmm. But you don't want to have too much context dependency where I have to read half a dozen pages to make these paragraphs make sense. Yes, yes, I understand. We we and we know we're quite aware that sometimes you'll be some people will read these concepts and they'll go, okay, what does that mean? And what? we expect them to go out and search. And they'll be able to find what it means from, you know, either Wikipedia or some other authoritative, well, not necessarily, whether it's authoritative or not, but Wikipedia is one place where you can go to find out this information and say, okay, this is what this thing is. And then it'll add some, you know, context information into what they're actually reading. Sure. I mean, you need to understand data binding already yeah. if you're going to make sense of some of this stuff. You know, there's, there's, there's lots of topics of that. You don't explain what Ajax is here. You just talk about the benefits it would have in the application. Yes, yes. And that's what I mean by it's not exhaustive. You know, it, it's it's comprehensive, but not exhaustive. We, right. We had, you got to draw the line somewhere. Otherwise, it would be, you know, a ridiculously sized book. One yeah. thing that's interesting on page 87, um, where you're defining different types of applications or programs, even if they're not application services, for example, um, is that the rich internet client is it says the following presentation layer technologies are available for creating rich internet client applications silverlight and silverlight with ajax so why isn't just regular old ajax asp.net included in rich internet client applications that was one of the things we debated actually for a while because um when we were talking to different people a number of people include AJAX in the normal, uh, you know, what would be considered rich in a client. And our distinction was, we we made the distinction that it had to be a plug-in. And, but the reason we did that is because AJAX is kind of an extension, and some people may disagree with this, so certainly understandable. Uh, AJAX is kind of an extension of web apps that said, hey, web apps are not really doing what we need them to do. Here's a way that we can get around that and make them richer. Whereas something like Silverlight, um, or you know, a true what we call a true reapplication was kind of built from the ground up to be made to do that type of rich internet uh, application. So it's not that AJAX is not a valid technology or anything like that. It certainly is, but we didn't group it in that particular area because it was kind of dissimilar in terms of the guidance that we were talking about. Well, and I also notice you don't put AJAX on its own. It's ASP.NET Web Forms with AJAX or Silverlight yes. with AJAX. 
Right, right, which is why actually we call that out here. I mean, because you, yes, you can do Silverlight and you can use Ajax at the same time, but it's it's almost it's a different choice than just using just you know a straight plug-in thing like Silverlight. Right. It's got to be challenging to actually raft through all of technologies and try and create a taxonomy around them. Really? Where yeah. do they group together? Mm-hmm. Well, actually, let me uh, finish to go back and talk about the structure of the guide, and then we'll jump down to the uh, the data matrices to talk about that point. Um, one of the other things I wanted to talk about with the with the guide is just the frames that are in the beginning. So in if we were in uh, Chapter 15, for example, where we were in with, with web applications, and if you take a look at the web application frame, which is on page 233, this is a feature that's in all of the um, the archetypes and the layers, and this is what I was talking about with the architecture frame that we start with. So we start with that architecture frame that was in the meta frame at the top, and then we say, okay, what's specific to web applications that we need to add? And again, this is the hotspot. So you can see things like page layout, page rendering, um, service interface. These have been added to the frame. And the first part of the frame, we go through common things that you're going to, the key issues basically, which could be patterns or any patterns or things that people need to really look at or may do wrong in that particular area. Then we use that same frame to go through the various guidelines for those areas. So you can see that it's repeated. You know, authentication, if you go down to the next section, you're going to have, we tried to hold it to five points. We bubbled up the five biggest points that uh, came out in the particular area. So for authentication, you know, identify trust boundaries within within web application layers. This will help you determine where to authenticate. And if you're using forms authentication, use the platform features such as forms element when possible. So we go through each of these um, hotspot areas in the frame, giving then, you know, guidelines. And then at the bottom, we actually talk about patterns uh, after the, the, we go through deployment and some of the other uh, areas as they're relevant. So security, performance, and deployment. Then we actually try to pin these two patterns. So we have a category and we use that same frame and then we talk about um, you know, define patterns in the patterns community and where they would be relevant to you. So if we take a look at... 244. Done. Yeah. Yep, 244. Then you can take, you can see, you know, for a uh, page layout, you know, template view, composite view, transform view, two-step view. And again, we don't, we take a little bit of time to define some of these at the bottom with a short pattern description, but we expect that you would go out and read on what those patterns are and, it's, you know, those are documented out on the net already. But a lot of people would get lost and they would say, okay, I got all these patterns. You know, what's, when do I use them? How do I use them? What's the context? And we tried to add some context for people so that they could tie all that information back together. It's pretty cool. And then there's, of course, a, a list of additional resources on MSDN and on other places. Mm-hmm. Yep. A, Again, we tried, we tried to use the rule of five here, too, which a JD would get on. We used to, we had this laundry list when we... I've... I'm not sure if it's this way with most books, but it's, you know, I think we were at like 600 pages or 700 pages at one point. And then you go through the process of, you know, what Agile calls refactoring, which is we go through and we go, okay, what's really important here so that we're not overloading people with a lot of information. So we try to stay to, you know, a bullet list of, of somewhere around five. Sometimes it goes to six or seven, but in that area for any one of these particular sections so that people are just getting those top layers of information and they don't get overloaded with all the bottom stuff trying to figure out okay what's really important a rule of five just you get to a point where you're making so many points none of them matter anymore well it's just it's just easy to get lost right our 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 rational minds can only hold so many pieces of information in them before right you forget them so we do you know selective filtering jd i have talked about he said that we had such information overload these days but the the issue is not that there's so much information; it's that it's a filter problem. Agreed. It's hard to filter information and to get the relevant information, right? So we tried to do that for you here, um, you know, with the tools that we had. Yeah, interesting challenge. Do you get into the sort of SOA architectures here too? Uh, we talk a little bit about SOA, um, but we don't necessarily. Um, I mean, in the communication guidelines, for example, there's a section that talks about, um, you know. REST versus SOAP and, and WCF and issues issues of that sort. Right. But there are some areas that are kind of religious debates. Oh, yeah. We tried to, you know, we tried to basically uh, say, okay, what are the benefits? When would you use this thing? 
and pin it to you know the types of scenarios as opposed to get into the debate where which could be endless, right? Because whichever side we fall on, we're going to end up having somebody who doesn't agree with it. So we really are really scenario based is what we tried to pin it to, and we talk about the benefits and drawbacks. So that's the majority of what you're going to find in the guide is that type of stuff. So the rest versus soap section, for example. Yeah, um, I like rest versus soap. Use rest, don't use soap. Next section. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, as some people would uh, definitely do. Actually, the funny thing, if you go out on the net, there's a a post by David Ng in in the beta of the guide where we uh, had the rest versus soap section, and he said that he almost choked on something when he read it, and then (laughs) we we sent him something back, and we said, okay, so let's work together, and we spent uh, quite a bit of time going through the rest versus soap sections to make sure that we had proper input. We met with Ted Neward on that as, as well. And let me read the so, key if, paragraph here, if I can. While both REST and SOAP can be used with most service implementations, the REST architectural style is better suited for public services or cases where a service can be accessed by unknown consumers. SOAP is much better suited for implementing a remote procedure call interface between layers of an application. With SOAP, you are not restricted to HTTP. The WS star standards, which can be utilized in SOAP, provide a standard and therefore interoperable method of dealing with common messaging issues such as security, transactions, addressing, and reliability. REST can also provide the same type of functionality, but you must create a custom mechanism because few agreed-upon standards currently exist for these areas. That's a nice little summary. And and quite balanced, actually. Mm-hmm. Well, that was the that was the benefit of having David in there is because he said, no, you got rest wrong. You need to be looking at these areas. And we went, oh, okay, that's good. And so then we went back and forth and reviewed. So we try to stay balanced because, again, you know, it's scenario-based and, and you could have debates about this stuff for a long period of time. Mm. Well, and both work, too. I mean, there's sure. no question these are capable yeah. technologies. It's just what scenarios make more sense. I like the idea that REST is public-facing and SOAP is inwardly-facing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's where it's in the... And that, of course, you know, over time, this is one of the reasons we actually created the guide like this, right? This section could change in a year or two, right? Right. So, you know, the standards, somebody could come along and say, okay, here's some more standards for REST that are over and above fielding, or maybe fielding will say it, and then, you know, it'll be different, and they'll say, okay, well, it makes sense So in these contexts as well, additionally. So, and we're certainly, you know, in being in patterns and practices, I mean, it's, we're really about, okay, how do you use this, this information? And, you know, MCS will use our stuff, and, of course, we know a lot of other people outside use our stuff. So we're really trying to take that more balanced view to say, when is it really useful? Obviously, both, um, both technologies are in heavy use and you know, are useful in general. You don't seem to mention testing specifically here, but you do talk about quality. Mm-hmm. Which are, which are you looking at? I'm looking at the the uh, the quality attributes section in Chapter 7. Chapter 7, okay. And just interesting to see how you approach this uh, element uh, in the uh, the design of an application. Mm-hmm. Is it, to me, that sort of jumps out at, you know, part of quality definitely is testing. You're not just leaving testing all by itself. Well, we did. We, I mean, we have the quality attribute of testability, right? But right, unit testing and and these types of things are are large. You know, they're large issues in and of themselves. And actually, we had some people say, you know, you should cover ALM and and uh, things like that. And we said, well, you know, we have to draw the line at some particular point. And this is just you know where we drew it. We talk about the importance of you know the testability of your application, but the the issues of you know whether you use agile or whether you use you know big upfront design or thing or something of that sort, it's going to vary how you would do that. Yeah, so you stay clear of the methodology. We, yeah, we try, to, we try to stay, as in this particular area, we do. We do stay clear of the methodology. This is actually one point to, um, to show you, too, which is if we go to Chapter 4, Designing Your Architecture, one thing we do lay out is a method for actually designing the architecture, and this is actually a step-by-step. Oh, yeah. So, it, and it may be useful. It's kind of, um, it, it's more agile-based. I wouldn't say it's, it's agile because, um, you know, agile is a, more of a methodology. Um, but it, it is this iterative approach that we go through. And the important part, there's actually a little piece that J.D. and I have talked about since the, the guide has been let out that would make it a little bit easier. And what you're looking at is when you're identifying your architecture objectives in the early part, Okay. Yeah, let me let me just read these off. Uh there's five steps. Again, you're 
on five here. And there's a, a circular pattern here where uh, two through five go round and round. And so you're always coming back to number one. Number one is identify architecture objectives. Clear objectives help you to focus on your architecture and solving the right problems in your design. Precise objectives help you to determine when you have completed the current phase and when you're ready to move to the next phase. Step two, key scenarios. Use key scenarios to focus your design on what matters most and to evaluate your candidate architectures when they are ready. Sounds very agile-like to me. Step three, application overview. Understand your application type, deployment architecture, architecture styles, and technologies in order to connect your design to the real world in which the application will have to operate. Step four, key hotspots. Identify key hotspots based on quality attributes and the architecture frame. These are the areas where mistakes are most often made when designing an application. Finally, step five, candidate solutions. Create a candidate architecture or architectural spike and evaluate it against your key scenarios, hotspots, and deployment constraints. Yeah, it does sound kind of agile Yeah, we, we tend to, well, of course, you know, we're more agile over here, and we tend to find that this is, you know, more useful. And a lot of people don't necessarily even have this idea, the idea of, okay, I'm going to take a look at what's going on. I'm going to actually whiteboard, you know, a candidate solution, and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to evaluate it. Now, one of the pieces that actually isn't fully in here. Um, is to actually walk through your prioritized story. So earlier in one of the chapters, we show a, a Venn diagram of where you've got the user, the business, and the system. And in the olden days, you know, when you didn't have the web, um, kind of the business and, the, and sometimes the system would actually dictate more of how the app was supposed to work. And now with the web, the user's getting much more of a vote um, because they can just go to another website if they don't like your interface, right? Right. So, and and that's also happening even internally in some cases where users are saying, "Look, this doesn't doesn't work for me." So, the idea is that you have these stories that you're gonna you're gonna um, actually go through. So, you have user stories, or you could say stories, or you know, scenarios, business stories, and system stories, and they're going to be key stories from an architectural standpoint. So. They're going to, you know, go through different parts of the architecture and use those different parts of the architecture. And then if you look at each of those stories from each of those perspectives, so you could do a three-by-three. Three. If we're going to do a, a full approach, then it would be kind of, you know, uh, multiplying the two. But we don't expect you to do that because we figure that you're going to know pretty quickly some of these things are, you know, not not important. So you're going to eliminate some of what's going on. But if you take a look at your user stories, business stories, and system stories, and then you look at your user stories from a user perspective and your business stories from a user perspective and your system stories from a user perspective. And then you do the same thing for the business perspective and the tech perspective. Then you kind of have a matrix of how these scenarios look. And then you, then you would incorporate the architecture frame, the hotspots that are in the architecture frame for the type of app you're building, and the quality attribute frame that we have, which are also hotspots. And from there, now if you do this all in the first you know, the first iteration or the first uh, time you're looking at this, you're going to come up with a set of things that are actually important. And so you're not going to have to probably do this iteration through the, um, you know, every time that you go through and do another candidate architecture. Although you could to see what's going to be important at that point, because something that wasn't important previously may suddenly become important. Um, but then you'll have an area to actually look at. And we kind of call it, um, we played with the term just-in-time architecture in in more of the agile world, where you say, okay, now I know that something has just become important or one of our scenarios has said that we're not dealing with this issue. So now we have to do an architectural spike around that or we have to figure that out or we have to do some refactoring to make sure that we're actually going to deal with this particular scenario. Remind us what an architectural spike is, for those not familiar with that term. Uh, that's when you that's when you take a particular area, which is my understanding and definition, of course, but it's when you take a particular area and you say, um, we're going to concentrate on this area for this iteration. And so we're going to look at this area, concentrate just on that, and then we're going to produce a actual version of the application that runs with this added, uh, this added information that's into it. So that's my definition, but you guys are welcome to add another one. I'm, I have to add a caveat that, um, you know, Agile actually coming to Patterns and Practices, Agile was a new concept for me. So it's been about a year that I've been in here. 
So I'm still learning a lot about it. Rob, you talked earlier about these uh, different matrices, specifically the data technology matrices, but there's a bunch of them in the appendix, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we got a few of them. We, and there's actually more on the KB site. We, this is the um, few that we thought were most useful for the guide. So the, the whole idea of the matrix is that if, um, let's say that you were, let's say you're using Java and you'd never used .NET before. Part, what we actually would recommend is that you come in to the guide and you um, you read some of the upfront chapters, actually the fast track probably and the solutions at a glance, and then the .NET overview, and then you'd probably jump right down to these data technology matrices to see what are the mappings between different uh, Microsoft technologies and when do you use them and what do you have to consider when you're using them. So um, in particular, the data technology matrix, we're going through ADO.NET Entity Framework, we're going through, um, you know, link to entities, link to SQL, link to data set, and a number of these different ones. And then we're just calling out, you know, one of the benefits when you would want to actually use one of these. And then considerations, you know, when you'd actually want to say, maybe I don't want to use this, or it may be an issue, you know, at a later time. And just this uh, in itself, at least I think, is a, a huge uh, benefit because we just started out with a linear list of, you know, technologies with these names that, the marketing folks come up with, and then, you know, we had to figure out, okay, where is everything? And we went through a lot of, uh, you know, reviews in this particular case with the data technology folks to make sure that, you know, this is actually valid. And then after we, you know, list out these things in a frame, we go through some general recommendations um, to further help you, you know, discern when you're supposed to use these things. Yeah, there's more whammies here too. I mean, when you talk into product teams, Product teams tend to think their product will do everything, or mm-hmm. at least they, they have solutions for everything. So finding actually the best way to use each one of these tools is really challenging, especially untangling this data access mess, because there's so many technologies. Yes, yes. It, remind, it, it harkens me back to the, the mid-'90s, which I don't know if you guys remember when there was DAO and RDS. And, and ADO, oh, yeah. yes. <laughs> when I first saw ADO, I thought, oh, boy, another data object. <laughs> I know. I, I thought the same thing because I'm going. Oh, how do we have to figure this out? How do we tell everybody else to figure it out? And and it's understandable from a standpoint of you know as you innovate and you move forward, then um, you know it's almost a little small marketplace that happens in Microsoft in some ways. And then they go, oh, we need to combine these things so that we have a you know one story. But it does make it difficult for you know a developer if they don't know what's happening. And so that's really what we try to do is take this snapshot in time. Uh, you know, at this particular point say, hey, what's useful when? Well, and you have specifically called out the whole link to entities, link to SQL event, which is relatively recent, where this idea that these two will come together as one product. Yes, that was an interesting thing, because when we were in beta two, we actually had to yank out a lot of the data stuff as we waited for that particular thing to work itself out. So, um, yeah, as soon as we got that information, we put that directly in there, and we've been talking with the Entity Framework folks to say, hey, you know, do you want to use Link to SQL? Entity? And, and they've said, you know, Link to SQL is, is perfectly fine in some situations, and what we're going to do is we're going to fold, you know, those cases back into the Entity Framework as we move forward for .NET 4.0 and Entity Framework 2.0. So, yeah, they, we point- they, the way you describe it in here is pretty straight up. Link to SQL scenarios will be integrated and supported by ADO.NET Entity Framework. Yep. So... Provided they do that, because the current version doesn't do that, but it, presumably the next version will. Yes, well, that's why they say at this particular point, Link to SQL is fine, uh, you know, if you're using it now, and it's not that they're going to remove it. So we just pointed to the blog where, I mean, they have the definitive, um, you know, statement on what they're going to do, and so, but we wanted to make sure that people knew that. And one of the other things that you actually will find throughout the guide, which is relevant, we tried to go a little bit forward, is we talk about Silverlight for mobile, for example, but... That's an announced product, but it's not released at the time this guide was released. So we had to talk to, you know, the mobile folks and say, okay, can we put this in there? And what, you know, how much is in there? Because it is relevant um, to if you're going to do a mobile application to know that this is coming and that you should, you know, be looking at that. Yeah, and it, it is a challenge to deal with each one of these things as they they come down the path. You've got stuff that is on its way out, or you know, recently decided to integrate, and stuff that's really just coming. Yes, yes. And, and in fact, we had some stuff in where people said, oh, no, we're not using that anymore. We yeah. went, oh, okay. So, you know, we, we said, okay, that's not the recommended guidance, although it's still around, um, you know, for those 
those cases. And there was an interesting case actually for uh, ASP.NET for mobile, which is uh, if you take a look at that section, um, you know the they they had um, support for it, and I think it was Visual Studio 2005, and then support was never removed from the runtime, but it was removed from design time. Um, and then enough people asked where they said, okay, hey, we still want this, that they put in, uh, the, the team actually put in some templates so that you could load it back into Visual Studio. Right. And, but it's not, you know, it doesn't have the model, it doesn't have the uh, full um, support, but it's got at least these templates. And, and the issue that comes up in that area um, is that, you know, as devices are getting more and more powerful, they they're doing you know kind of what iPod has done and and we're everybody else is starting to do now too where they're saying okay we just read the actual internet we don't need all these various profiles and everything to reformat things for mobile devices and so that's really the issue that's been coming up there and it's not like anything is right or wrong but we need to call that out obviously and so we did that we said hey this exists but by the way here's the issue with it and that's actually down in the technology section for the mobile application area. And we talk about, um, you know, uh, taking a look at that earlier on. We actually tried to make a lot of the principles and things that are in the earlier parts of the chapters to be um, durable. J.D. likes to say evolvable and durable frame. Evolvable means I can easily find out where things are changing and I can change that area. Durable means that in general, we're really dealing with patterns and practices when we can, and we're trying to limit the technology talk to an isolated spot, you know, at the bottom of the chapter or in a spot where we can actually remove it. And frame meaning what I talked about with the hotspots. Right. So, you know, that's, you'll find that in these, in the mobile chapter and also in any, any of the archetype chapters. You know what's not in his guide at all is any mention of cloud technologies. You know, we did, ah, yeah, we did research on the cloud technologies, and we actually, um, it, what happened was it, it's still evolving to a large extent. And so services, I mean, talks about that, and we actually had an explained that was on the cloud technologies, and that may appear on our knowledge base at some point. Um, but it was just beyond the extent. Again, you know, this rule of five, we said, okay, where are we at? Where where can we pin things? And um, you know, DDD was another of those things too, which we're doing. We're actually working with the Alt.net folks, sure, um, to make sure that we've got the DDD story right. Because traditionally, it's you know, Microsoft's been more data focused, but we certainly acknowledge that DDD is a, you know, um, well, I wouldn't even say it's up and coming anymore. It's it's been adopted at this point. But isn't that more of a methodology element? Uh, it is, but it changes the way that you can do architecture. Uh, you know, in the way you think about it. So your business layer and your business entities and, you know, things change. And um, we've been having debates on anemic data models and, you know, a number of these different concepts um, to say, okay, so what's the proper way to do, you know, domain-driven design? And then also there's the issue that, um, you know, junior developers may not understand it as well. So we've got some people who've tried to do domain-driven design and they don't necessarily, uh, it's not implemented correctly you know, at their company, and then it doesn't work for some particular reason. So we're, we're, we were taking a look at, you know, all those particular issues, but we didn't cover them specifically in the guide because they're kind of on the, just the edge of, of uh, you know, what's happening these days. Absolutely. Well, that just about brings us to the end of the show. Is there anything we missed that you wanted to uh, make mention of? I think the only other, um, the only other thing would probably be to, if you wanted a history of, you know, how the guide got put together and a lot more information on uh, how to use it and things of that sort, would be to take a look at JD's blog. Okay, and we have a link to that on the show. Yeah, so he's got, uh, you know, he's got a lot of. As the guide went on, he exposed different parts of it. He talks about the agile engineering process. He talks about, um, you know, why certain decisions were made. A whole number of things like that, and it can be very useful for adding, uh, you know, an understanding behind the guide and and. He'll, he's very responsive to comments as well. So if you have any other questions or anything like that, he's more than happy to talk about that on his blog. All right. Well, our guest has been Rob Boucher. Rob, thank you very much. It's been great, and it, you did some great work here. Uh, thanks very much. I appreciate you guys. And have a good day, Carl and Richard. Thanks. Okay. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks.
Dotnet Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.